Okay, so as you can see on the screen, um, the, that's the, the front cover of the, the book that we're going to be starting to go through now. You know, again, we're going through a series put out by Crossway called Short Studies in Biblical Theology. Um, and the theme we're focusing on for the next four weeks in this class is, or this Sunday school is work in our labor in the Lord. Why that one? It just looked very interesting. There's, uh, you know, obviously a lot of themes. I think 26, if I remember correctly, I could be wrong. Uh, there's a lot of them to go through, and they're not always so obviously connected together, except for, again, um, how they fit into the storyline of the Bible. But that's what we're going to cover. Um, the title of this morning's um, lesson is Foundational Elements of Righteous Labor. Well, I want to begin briefly going over the, the very short introduction that the author gives in this book. And by the way, the, the author's name is James Hamilton. Um, he serves um, as a professor of biblical theology um, in Louisville, in seminary there. And so, um, you know, it's, it's, I've enjoyed immensely uh, this study and preparing it um, and going through it this week. So, again, some elements of the introduction. Uh, one of the goals here that he lays out is that we need to understand how the biblical authors view work. Again, that's the theme that we have here, work. Well, how does... Um, the authors who wrote the Bible, what do they think of it? How does that theme f fit into uh, biblical theology itself? Um, and, you know, we got to understand the, the biblical authors, their worldview on work to do this. Uh, and from even a bigger picture perspective, as we stand back, and how does this theme of work relate to Scripture's overall emphasis on Christ's redemptive work? With is the storyline of the Bible. Well, I want to point out a few notes that the author brings out in the introduction. He says, for our purposes here in this book, the following questions will help us to seek the interpretive perspective of the biblical authors on the topic of work. So the first question that we're going to be asking ourselves as we go through this is, what part did work play in the big story of the world through which the biblical authors interpreted their lives as they lived and did the ministry work that the Lord had given them and whatever work that was in different ways, even in their secular lives. How did that play into that, the big story of what God was trying to accomplish to, with, through them in the world? The next question he asks is, what propositional truths, what fundamental, foundational, really, truths about work did they, these biblical authors, what did they understand to flow out of and back into that big story? And again, the big story being the storyline of the Bible, Christ's redemptive work. And then the last reflective question that he uses as a means to stay on topic is, do the biblical authors understand work to symbolize something beyond mere labor? 
we want it to mean more than just sweat, blood, and tears. And I think we'll be pleased to find out, and indeed it does. Um, author says, he says, these questions will be used to get at what the biblical authors believed about work, and when we have understood what they believed about work, God willing, we will know what we should believe about work. So we're going to begin and start off um, in the first chapter. There's four chapters in this book, by the way, just like it was in the last one we went through on the serpent and the serpent slayer. Well, the first thing we're going to look at is God's design for work in the very good creation. And then, of course, this is going to be from a view of before sin enter the world. And then we're going to go on from there in the second chapter um, and consider what it looks like work, what it looks like in a fallen world. Thirdly, what work should be in the kingdom that the Lord has brought in. And then finally, what the Bible indicates about work in the new heaven and the new earth, which the Lord will bring when he returns. And so we're going to look at work at creation after the fall and what it looks like now that Christ has accomplished redemption and what it will look like in the restoration. So those, those four main um, divisions in time, if you will. Okay, And so, God willing, we will explore work as it was meant to be, as it is, as it can be, and as it will be. All right, so that's the author's quips on the introduction to his book. Chapter, chapter one is on, um, called Creation, Work in the Very Good Garden. And so, the first section of this chapter is God's design for work. What was his plan and purpose. There's a, a movie that um, he mentions in this book that is one of my favorites called Oh Brother Where Art Thou? Uh, maybe you've seen it, I don't know. It's a, a take on Homer's The Odyssey, uh, a modern take. It's, it's, um, it's quite humorous. But there's a song in that book, or rather in that movie called Big Rock Candy Mountain. And maybe if you turned on and remembered some of the old-timey music from the earlier 1900s, 1920s, and the like, um, it may trigger in your mind what that song is, but Big Rock Candy Mountain, and I'll spare you from singing it a little bit, but um, it's talking about, um, you know, life on easy street, really more than that. Life as if it were just handed to you that you could be lazy and you know, all the good things of the world would just fall into your lap. It, it celebrates a view like that. Um, and really, what it celebrates in that song is a desire to escape reality, usually in ways that are not helpful at all, like intoxication. Uh, but the desire to sleep all day and, you know, and to just get rid of the idea of work. Get rid of that idea of work. Well, you know, as much as I enjoy that movie um, and appreciate his analysis of that song, but um, we are going to be exploring, as we go through this theme here, the very opposite of idea of that, that the song Big Rock Candy Mountain tries to bring out. Um, we're going to be diving into where how the Bible indicates really 
a, a destination that we're traveling toward and in right now where work is an integral part of that, of God's plan and his design, God's design for work. In Psalm 128, and you can turn there if you like in your Bibles. We'll, we'll read that brief psalm here in a second. Uh, that Psalm 128 um, is a, a song of a sense. That's a title that's given to it, a song of a sense. It was sung uh, as they went up to Jerusalem to worship. Um, and it's really focusing on what a blessed life looks like. What does it look like to possess a, blef, a blessed life? And, you know, it's significant that the idea of work plays into this. So let me read Psalm 128. It's just six verses. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. Verse 2. You shall eat the fruit of of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. A brief psalm. Well, this, this psalm addresses a man who works there in verse 2 especially and the blessings that come because of that work as he fears the Lord and he walks in the Lord's ways as he acknowledges God throughout the day. And so this psalm's depiction of the good life entails hard work, honest work done to provide for others, for one's dependence, um, like your family, um, where you can see growth and a fruitfulness as evidence of God's favor and blessing. So what we see here is a picture of what prosperity looks like. It includes godliness, responsibility, stewardship, uh, and again, an awareness of God. All of this prompting a right fear of the Lord and desiring to obey him. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is how we can accomplish that even in our work that God gives us. I want that to be evident in my work. And I'm, I'm sure you do too. Um, let's go to the next section. And this is, well, it's in the same section, but a little bit more about um, um, Genesis 1 and 2, what's going on in those initial chapters. Well, as you read those initial chapters, what are we reading? We're reading about God creating the world, right? The universe, in fact. And he does this by speaking words. God works by speaking words that we see here in those initial chapters. Um, well, Hamilton, the author here, he argues that this validates all kinds of what he calls knowledge work. Knowledge work in which you do the hard work of thinking and communicating. And that it is used to accomplish what God has put into us in his image. To, to do those things that he has made us to do. Um, 
by doing this knowledge work, it's part of that. It's not just um, the labor and, and growing crops and the like. The, even as he again argues how this includes knowledge work. And I think that's one of the things I want us to try to take from this morning as we go through this is all the type of work that this entails. Work is not punishment, right? I know you've heard that before. We need to remind ourselves about it sometimes, especially when in your plumbing under that cramped sink. Um, work is not punishment. Um, it is exalted by God because it is, as our author here describes it, it is God-like activity. God works. And we shouldn't think that once God completed the work of creation that he was finished with work as the deist kind of thinks that God just kind of started it all and spun it into motion and now we're just sitting back watching providence at work as a justification for his right to heal on the Sabbath Jesus said this he said my father is working until now and I am working he said that in John 5. Well, the first thing the Bible shows us about God is that he is what Hamilton describes as a creative, competent, efficient, caring worker. A creative, competent, efficient, caring worker whose work provides for others, it blesses others, and meets the needs of others. Do you see that in your work? It makes God's work makes life possible for us. Man was created not to just sit back and passively observe what's going on in the world. We have a big task ahead of us, given to us. We see this in Genesis 1:28 with the dominion mandate. And God blessed them. That passage reads, And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. We are to be fruitful and we are to multiply and subdue the whole world. And that takes hard, honest work, depending on the Lord. And it was to start with the garden and then just move out from there as we exercise dominion over the whole world. And one of the things the author notes is it's interesting to observe that in order to subdue and rule, as we've been commanded to do, we have to be fruitful and multiply, and we have to fill. And it makes the fact that man was made male and female indispensable, which, of course, flies in the face of a lot of what our culture is saying these days. Now, with that, the marriage that we see of the man and the woman that's depicted in Genesis chapter 2, obviously that will make filling the earth possible. You know, and then, of course, subduing it and ruling it. These are foundational realities that we see early on in the book of Genesis that makes realization of what Psalm 128 is talking about. Man enjoying the blessings of the fruits of his labor in the context of his family as he does it acknowledging God in his ways. You know, God gave man marriage 
to enable the completion of this God-given and these absolutely necessary responsibilities. It's part of the reason we God gave marriage. Scripture draws our attention to a more significant relational blessing that God's gift of the woman and how that was designed to be. God said that it was not good for man to be alone. We've talked about that recently. And so he created the very good companion that we have in the woman. Right, men? Okay. Um, In the very true story that we see in um, Genesis, uh, God gave marriage not only to enable the great task, but also to enrich the life and work that God gave to man. Something that Hamilton points out. Um, So we human beings were put on earth as visible representations of the character, authority, and rule of God Almighty as we were made in his image. And so there's a very fundamental answer to the question of why we're here. We're here to reflect the character of God and to do it in a way where we are subduing the earth and exercising dominion over it, over all of creation, whether the animals, the plants, over all creation, all under the blessing of God, according to the way he has instructed us to do these things. Hamilton notes, he says, doing these things as the image and likeness of God means that our task is to bring the nature and character of God to bear on all living things in the world that God's made. So we can see that application in our work. Uh, It's built. Work is built into the created order from the very beginning. It's part of man's stewardship that we've been mandated to do. All tasks man undertakes in God's world can be seen in relation to to this commission that God's given to us. All jobs relate to those great tasks. All righteous jobs, right? All good jobs. And we'll talk about that briefly in a second. But that goes from making roads to doing accounting work, which sometimes shocks me. (laughs) But all these things... It doesn't shock me, I joke. Um, All these things that we do, these jobs that we have, and we're wondering, does it really matter? It does. It does matter. (coughs) Excuse me. It does matter because it's part of ruling over God's creation. It takes an order of these things. It enables this person to do their job and their job, them to do their job, kind of like as we're the hands and feet and arms and eyes. in the body of Christ. We all work together to accomplish the purpose that God has given the church. And so you can kind of see that how that analogy works, even in some of these jobs that we have that seem kind of far removed from really accomplishing much. But as long as it's righteous labor, not sinful labor, it is part of that order. He, He quotes, he says in his book, he says, arguably, every righteous task in the world, from that of the farmer or rancher or to that of the engineer, the software developer, the nuclear physicist, to the ditch digger, uh, to the physician, the coach, 
to the pastor, zookeeper, politician. Well, I don't know if he meant politician, but um, we'll strike that one. Uh, the sergeant to the mailman. Every task in the world can be seen in relationship to the subjection of the earth and the exercise of dominion over the animal kingdom, over God's creation. Of course, not all jobs are righteous. We know that. Any job that would require you to transgress the law of God does not qualify as righteous labor. Um, it is more reflecting the usurper, that serpent, than it is the creator. So there's that distinction. So the feeling subduing and ruling, these are fundamental. These are foundational. He often likes to use the word, the author in this book, it's part of the propositional truth. These are things done for God's sake in the way that God's way to display his own character. When I say for God's sake, for the will of God, as he has willed us to do these things. So Genesis 2, it interprets and expands on Genesis 1. I'm sure you've noticed that as you read Genesis 2. It's kind of going over at a more expanded detail of what we read in chapter 1 in Genesis well, there's this connection being developed in that chapter between man and the working of the land. And we see in verse 5 of chapter 2, it says, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. And then this small explanatory note, it says, And there was no man to work the ground. Moses makes that comment, and there was no man to work the ground. Well, the author here in our book, he argues here, he says, here Moses is, he's not directly discussing man's role, but man's function, you could argue, is clear from this comment, this comment that says there is no man to work the ground. We can see man's function here, that God had not yet made man, so therefore man was not there to work the ground. So there's you know, some idea there's a purpose for man somehow, okay? So he goes on to say this unexplored explanatory comment, again, that man, there was no man to work the ground yet, that this comment shows Moses assumes that his audience, those to whom he's writing, will understand what he declares next, like in the dominion mandate, that man was made to exercise stewardship over God's world. By working it. By working it. The idea that man was made to work the ground is, is elaborated in verse 15 of chapter 2 in Genesis. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Now that's the ESV translation. Put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Now, if you have the Legacy Standard Bible, there is a textual note there on where it says, put him in. And that note suggests that part of verse 15 may be translated as caused him to rest. Or restating verse 15 as the Lord God took the man and caused him to rest in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So what's the point of, of bringing that out? Well. Hamilton, he argues that this is the first instance in the Bible of 
of the term rendered rest. But the root of that word will appear again in the naming of Noah. In the naming of Noah, where we see Lamech, Noah's father, he articulates in chapter 5 of Genesis that he hopes Noah will be the seed of the woman who will roll roll back that curse on the land. Kind of like how Eve hoped the same in her children would be that man. So when God put man in the garden to work, by contrast, he caused him to rest there as well. John Piper once said, and Hamilton brings this to our recollection here, there was a panel discussion one time that Piper was on, and he said simply that productivity is restful to my soul. Isn't that true? When a job is well done, how good that feels. When you've worked hard and it just comes together, and then vice versa, when you work really hard and it just just looks terrible, um, and it just doesn't work. Um, you know, that's part of the curse, right? The thorns and the thistles. But when it comes, comes together, man, that is a restful feeling. It points to an eschatological reality. That restfulness in work that we'll get to enjoy unobstructed someday. Can you imagine? That's, that's, that's work, y'all. Significant is the fact that God put the man in the garden to work it and keep it. And this could be rendered to also mean to guard and serve. Working and keep or to guard and serve. It has a bit of a, a priestly view on it, if you will. You know, maybe you've heard that often Adam is described as fulfilling the role of a priest in the garden. You know, as he represents God. There is a priestly hue, Hamilton says, a priestly hue over the work that God put Adam in the garden to do. In his work given in the garden, Adam fulfilled the role of priest representing God. All right. So let's talk about roles and working. What does the woman's role of helping, what does that entail? He, um, he says, and he notes in his book, he says, perhaps it would be easier to say what helping does not entail. For helping would seem to involve everything but what the man is to do. Okay? So God created the woman so that together man and woman could be fruitful and multiply. Obviously, it takes two to tango. And God created her to help the man to lead, protect, and to provide. These jobs were given to the man to do, to lead, protect, and provide. And the woman was given to help him do it. Man can't do it alone. He needed the help of woman. These roles are established so that together, the man and woman can accomplish these tasks that were set out so early in Scripture. Okay? So, they can only multiply together, fill the earth only with their children, therefore subduing the earth and taking dominion 
with the help of those, <clears throat> those help, help of those children. And clearly, these children are going to need to be brought up rightly in the fear and instruction of the Lord. These are huge jobs to develop a good work ethic as well in these children. And so, looking at it in this perspective, we can see so much more clearly, again, how our culture is in revolt against this foundational truth, these propositional truths. You know, viewing biological sex and these gender roles as really, as he describes it, a straitjacket. You know, fighting against it, as we understand our culture is trying to do. Well, he argues that we should receive how God made us as his gift and purpose for us. And therefore, we should marvel, really, at the marvelous freedom and the flexibility within the, what he says, the broad indications of God's created purpose for the man to work and the woman to help. Now, he goes on. How that looks from home to home may differ. Uh, the specifics are not spelled out, leaving room for uh, different personalities and relationships to maneuver freely within, as he calls it, as they dance to the music. Could look differently from home to home. I want to read what he writes. He says, you know, there in that last comment there, he says, the creational realities that we're talking about here are like the ballroom within which we find the dance floor with the music and its beat provided as well. How each married couple dances to the music is up to them. But as creatures in God's world, they will dance in this ballroom, on this dance floor, to this music, with the man leading and the woman helping. Not to do so is to rebel against the created order. The man leading, the woman helping, the man given those jobs to lead, protect, and provide. Those jobs were given to the man. Man exercises God's dominion over the world, all creation. And he does that, we see in the animals, by giving them names. And he even gives name to woman, right? Hamilton says, the man's exercise of his God-given authority over the woman in naming her, we don't see any oppression in this. There's no exploitation. There's no lack of concern. It's all so very thoughtful. It's noble, loving, biological, theological, true, righteous, pure, and it's poetic. After the fall, he, gives, he names her Eve, the mother of the living. So God exalts marriage in his created order. So what role does work play in the Bible's big story? Well, we see God charging the man to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, and subduing it, taking dominion. In this, God's commanding his image bearers to be that visible representation of his authority and of his character. And we are to do this as we cover the earth, to cover it with the glory of God. 
That's what we've been mandated to do. That's what we see in the work given to us. The work that Adam made impossible, that he made impossible by his sin, is the work that Jesus has made possible through his death and his resurrection and will accomplish perfectly when he returns. The earth will indeed be full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. That's what we're doing in our work, y'all, is seeing the glory of God extend beyond the garden, throughout the world. And that includes, of course, foremost, the gospel of Christ going forth and the work involved in that and our work that supports it. The work I do as an accountant, then God blesses with uh, income that I can generously even give to that cause as an example. So, Genesis 1 through 2 is the archetypal fountainhead of biblical symbolism, he writes. And it seems that the work spoken of in these chapters, working and keeping the garden, subduing the earth and exercising dominion over the creatures, it symbolizes all the work that man was given under heaven to do. It symbolizes that. All right, let's look at the blessings of the covenant. This is the next section in his first chapter. And he focuses on Deuteronomy chapter 28. Well, despite the fact that Adam sinned, and we know got expelled from the garden, God did not, however, alter his purpose from what he set out to achieve when he put Adam there in the first place. And that purpose was and is to cover the the dry lands with his glory. When God declares that the nation of Israel is his firstborn son, it is as though the nation of Israel has become, as Hamilton describes, a new Adam. For Israel to enjoy the land of promise by keeping the Mosaic Covenant, now remember that was one of the the promises of the covenant, as they could enjoy the promised land. Well, it would be for them to realize God's purposes and his blessings if they, if they keep it. And it would be, as he writes, as close to Eden as someone could get on this side of Adam's sin, this, this promised land that was to flow with milk and honey. Now, did they realize that? No, because they fell into sin. They became apostate in their religion. <coughs> the best thing about life in Eden he notes is that God walked there with man. The Bible talks about how God walked with them in the cool of the day. God's presence was there. They enjoyed his presence. He makes a comment. He says, Eden apart from God's presence would be a hellish absence of the one thing that makes life sacred. When we don't feel God's presence and the lack of it because of sin we're holding on to, it, it is not a good feeling, to say the least, as a Christian. And I, I know you, brothers and sisters, who have ex- experienced and tasted that the Lord is good, how this feels. And apart from God's presence, um, 
it is a hellish feeling, the way Hamilton describes it. He goes on to note that in Deuteronomy 28, it closes with statements that Israel will know these blessings if they obey the Lord and do what he commands. And between the opening statements and the closing statements of that chapter, the good things that are detailed in chapter 28 of Deuteronomy are only promised to the obedient. Only promised to the the obedient. And it really is a proclamation of what will truly be fulfilled when Christ returns. We know that. Because they didn't experience the promised land like it was. But we will get to experience beyond what the promised land would ever is going, should, was to be, or should have been, if you will, when we enjoy the new heavens and, new, and the new earth. And that is the grand narrative that we're seeing in Scripture. What we're driving toward. We're waiting in the Lord's return for these covenant blessings. And so there's some clear propositional truths here that can only be derived from the blessings of the covenant that God's promised blessing is contingent upon obedience. Work continues to point beyond itself, beyond just mere labor. It points to the character of God, and it's displayed in the way that God's people do their work. All right, next section. Judgment on God-given tasks. That judgment that we read about in Genesis chapter 3. So what does the Bible have to say about what, you know, how life and, and work changed after sin came into the world? Well, we know the woman was made to be fruitful and multiply and to help man with these tasks. Uh, the, those two roles of course, are made more difficult, as we read in Genesis 3, with the curse. When God promised on the woman pain and childbearing and that desire to usurp the man's authority and the corresponding harsh treatment she would receive from the man. Because of sin, the woman will experience a kind of pain. Did you know that, ladies? in case you didn't know, um, would experience a kind of pain that wouldn't have been there if she had obeyed, if man had obeyed as well. You know, having been commissioned to be fruitful and multiply with the man, the woman's sin added pain to what God created her to do. It's just wrong. When I say wrong, I don't mean that God is wrong in doing and carrying out the threat he promised. It's just, it's again, a tool not being used for its purpose. You know, pain in childbirth. The woman was also made to help the man, but in Genesis 3.16, she is told that her desire will be for her husband. As a result, God speaks a word of judgment over the woman that introduces relational difficulty. And that's an understatement. That's an understatement for sure. Well, her sin has made her tasks harder. But in God's mercy, and we should see it this way, she still has those same tasks. You still have those same tasks, ladies, that were first given to women in, in Scripture. 
hope remains. Praise God. Just as the woman's sin resulted in judgment that made it harder to accomplish what God created her to do, so also it is for the man. So rather than working a blessed creation, man has to work a cursed ground. Of course, that applies to all areas of work, to even the knowledge work we talked about moments ago. These obstacles and obstructions frustrate man's toil. Our minds aren't as sharp as they should be. We get tired. We can't think straight. Can't be as creative as we desire to be. All part and parcel to the fall. There's this sweaty struggle, as he describes it, marking man's labor until he dies. It's interesting to observe that in the Bible's grand narrative, God's judgment falls in particular on those domains of what he has made man and woman to do. That's where the curse is hitting us. What we were made to do. All right. Last section here. Work outside of Eden. Is there any hope? Well, hope does remain, as I had mentioned earlier. Hope remains because work remains, even though it's been made more difficult because of sin and and judgment. And it continues to point beyond mere labor to God's character. We are to work as in the Lord, showing that character of God, trusting in him, Hamilton says the fact that the man and the woman are allowed to continue their work, even though it's cursed, means they still have the job of making the ways of God known in the world. And we can do that in the way we work. Honest, hard work. Not, that, not lazy work. It's so much easier to show dishonest work. You know, I mean, well, I guess there's really what matters is how you're working or it comes from the heart. Because you could be working really hard grinding at the axe, if you will, at the wheel, and have the wrong purposes for your work, right? To be for, for selfish ambition, as James calls out. That would be a wrong purpose for that hard work. It does always stem from what's in the heart. But well, there is hope in our work. He goes on to says the assumption joins of that there's that good work to do that assumption joins with what God said to the serpent in Genesis chapter 3 to lay the foundation for all biblical faith and hope. God cursed the serpent, then told him in verse 15 that he would put enmity between the serpent and the woman and between his seed and hers. So enmity, that enmity requires that we continue to live and strive. Strive in our work, what God has called us to do. We can see that there was an act of faith even in the way in, in Adam naming Eve as the mother of all living. They just received that horrible curse, and yet he gives her that name. 
I can see an act of faith in that. Eve's response to, as we've noted earlier, the births of Cain and Seth, indicating that she was looking for the rise of that one that would crush the serpent's head. And so the hope that Adam and Eve felt at the birth of their sons was built on God's word of this promise. That hope brought the woman through that painful childbirth. That hope helped Adam and Eve work through their relational difficulties, and I'm sure they had some after that incident, right? Um, but forging a union in that marriage, that would be required to produce offspring. And we know it does, obviously. And that helped Adam in his sweaty work, his toil and painful labor, passed on from one generation to the next and to the next. As we do it to our children, instilling in them that good work ethic. Instilling in them, I hope, mom and dad, the character of God in their work. By being that example first yourself. We need to be reminded of it. Thus, our study of the subject. All right. Well, the last thing I'll comment here on what he says is the promise of the seed of the woman heralds a day when justice will be satisfied, curses will be removed, and work will once again be blessed by God, unimpeded and unhindered by judgment on sin. 